Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have as a guest, Rachel Pye Jones. Rachel also goes by the name occasionally Djibouti Jones, which was a name she blogged at under the past. She's the author of Pillars, which we'll be talking about here shortly, Stronger Than Death, Finding Home, Djibouti-licious, The Expat Cookbook, and Welcome to Djibouti. Her work appears in the New York Times, Runner's World, which I appreciate, as a former runner, Christianity Today, Deadspin, and many other places. She writes and speaks about life at the crossroads of faith and culture. She aims to challenge people to live brave, love wild, and believe goodness while leaping outside their comfort zones. She's most active and would love to connect with you at Substack, Do Good Better, where she creates challenging, provocative, deep diving conversations about humanitarian development and missions work. So let's welcome Rachel to the show. Welcome. Thanks for being here. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Yeah, so I guess the reason people can call me Djibouti Jones is that that is what I used to blog under. I'm one of the only English-speaking bloggers or writers in Djibouti. So that's where I am right now. I'm in the capital city, which is called Djibouti. So it's really fun to say Djibouti, Djibouti. And my family's been here since 2004. In 2003, we first moved to Somaliland. And then we came here. I'm from Minnesota originally, so it's been kind of a long, wild ride all these years. And um, I'm a writer. I am a mom of three, and I'm a runner. So my my running claim to fame that I like to say is that I participated in the inaugural marathon in Somaliland. It was the first one they had, and they included women. And I took second place. So second place in an international marathon. And then I tell people, just don't ask me how many women participated. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take my second place finish and, and be proud of it. Yeah, yeah. Rachel is, uh, uh, to this point, if unless I'm forgetting, some of my longest distance recording interview. So uh, glad to have you. Yeah, it's fun to have that distinction. Yeah, talk about, if you can, um, kind of your journey of faith, what uh, looked like you know, early and what it looks like today. Sure. So I, like I said, I grew up in Minnesota and I was born into a Christian family. We went to a Baptist church. And so I feel like I've been a Christian my whole life. I was, according to my parents, around four or five years old when I sort of prayed the prayer and invited Jesus into my heart. I don't remember it, um, but I do know that I've always loved Jesus. And so to me, it doesn't really matter the exact moment of when I made that decision, but it's Christianity and Jesus have very much been a part of my world ever since I was young. And for me, when I was young, it meant um, I went to public school, but everything else was Christian. So my church, my family, my community, it was really like a safe place, a beautiful place to grow up. I was loved. I felt safe. Um, I really identified well with that community. And so it was a, a good place to grow up, a good way to grow up. And then I, I like to think about that goodness as sort of launching me out. Um, I felt so 
steeped in it and so well loved that I wanted to, I just felt like I could do something with all this. You know, I didn't want to just stay in that space. I wanted to expand it and participate in kind of a global life of faith that felt, that felt bigger. And, and so when I think about, for me, what it means to be a Christian now, it feels like more is a word that sort of defines how I think about my faith. So the, the theology that led me to pray that prayer, you know, when I was a kid was believing Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. It was, you know, that was the wholeness of it pretty much, of course, as a kid's understanding. But, but now I feel like what I understand about, about Jesus is more. It's not just, you know, cross and sin, forgiveness and death. It's Jesus's life. It's the way he lived among the, the marginalized people, oppressed people, how he worked for justice and freedom and all these things and how um, even the, the idea of died for my sins as opposed to like the community sins, this whole idea of a communal faith, that's more than just my individual faith. And so um, I think about even what I've experienced of being in Djibouti and thinking about faith globally as a Christian, it's more than this American Minnesota Baptist Christianity. It's, it's diverse and it's, um, I experience more mystery, more curiosity, more ability to ask big questions without being afraid. So yeah, I really like thinking about that idea of now what being a Christian means for me is just, it's bigger and it's more, even though it's a little bit more mysterious, I don't feel like I have the same uh, need for all the answers that I had before. I'm, I'm okay with some ambiguity and some mystery. Um, but I feel like even right there, there's a chance for more, for God to be more than I thought he was. So that's kind of a, some broad strokes about what it's, my faith journey has been like. Yeah, that's great. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, what is, what is the spiritual practice that you, uh, would you find meaningful or meaningful or might recommend to others? One that I have been thinking about for the last few years, I, I get it from Barbara Brown Taylor. She talks about in one of her books, this idea of hunting for the divine presence. And I also, I reference that in some of my writing in, in terms of searching for the signs, the signs of God. And so the way I think about that is when I go out, like a, a hunter is actively looking for something, intentionally looking for something. And what I want to look for is the divine presence, the goodness of God in the world, in my daily life. And so it's, it's looking at my daily life with intentionality and searching for the ways that God is active and present in the things that I'm doing, in my ways of interacting with people. Um, so I think about that as a spiritual discipline. Even when I'm out for a run, how can I experience God in this moment and, and see his handiwork to see, um, you know, creativity and things like that. So that is a spiritual practice that I've, I, I am enjoying developing a skill for. Do you see running as a spiritual practice? For me, I know it, I, especially it was for me. Yeah, I guess that's a good question of what is a spiritual practice? What do we mean by that? So for me, absolutely. Like it is, it's grounding, it's um, helping me connect with my body and, and increases my thankfulness. So it, can thankfulness be a spiritual practice? If that can be, then, you know, absolutely these ways of, I'm so thankful that I have the ability to, to run and that, um, you know, I can experience joy. I can experience weakness even when I'm doing it. Absolutely, I feel like that would definitely be a spiritual practice. Awesome, awesome. 
Well, let's jump in and talk about your book, Pillars. What's the full title here? How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. So, um, there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about here. So, I guess uh, maybe for our listeners, kind of introduce uh, the book. But maybe before that, even like tell about you know why you're in Djibouti uh, and why you were in Somaliland and what kind of got you there. Sure. So Minneapolis has one of the largest Somali populations in North America. And when my husband and I were first married, we lived in an apartment complex that was mostly populated by Somali immigrants or refugees. So we were college students and it was close to campus. And we were surrounded at that time by about 5,000 Somali Muslims in the same building as us. And that was the first time that I had really encountered Muslims on a daily level or a daily experience. And so. Uh, We just were learning and getting to know our neighbors, and that was where our first children were born. They were twins, and I was pretty helpless as a mom of twins at a young age. And so my neighbors who were, (laughs) yeah, it was totally overwhelming. And so my neighbors, these Somali women, would come and help me. They would help me rock the babies. They would help me clean the house. And so I just experienced, even in Minneapolis, this hospitality and generosity and built relationships with people. And so my husband and I had wanted to live abroad. He's a teacher, professor by his training, and I'm, I had studied linguistics. And so um, we wanted to have this experience of living abroad, and we didn't know exactly where to go. And then Somalis invited us to Somaliland, which is northern Somalia. It's a relatively peaceful region of the country. We didn't know about it at the time, but as they explained, there's this university there. We will you know, be your, your guides and your helpers, and we would like you to come. And so we felt like that was pretty profound, that we had an open invitation by the local people who wanted us to come, that we had skills they needed so that we wouldn't be just coming in as, hey, we're American and we want to do this thing for you. You know, we were really able to meet a need that they, um, that they had identified and asked us to fill. And so with that, and then actually my husband took a trip there before we moved to see, hey, could we really live here as a family with two two babies, you know, at the time. And he came back from that first trip and he said, we can't do this. This is way too hard for us. I think we should do it. So that that idea of it being too hard for us would require us to be humble. It would require us to put ourselves under the local leadership to really come in as learners instead of people thinking we had it all figured out. And so, you know, with all that kind of girding us, I guess, we, we went it and we moved to Somaliland in 2003 with um, two and a half year old twins. And so from there, we, we weren't sure how long we'd be there. He was a professor at the university there. there. It was peaceful at the time. There ended up being some violence. And so we had to leave in, uh, after about two, um, excuse me, 10 months. And so in 2004, January, we he, were invited to Djibouti to come where he was a professor here at the university. And so Djibouti is a bordering country of Somaliland. The, the people are majority Somali, majority Muslim. And so it was similar a little bit, although more developed. And so, yeah, we've been here now since 2004. He taught at the university for most of that time. And then now we run an international school. Awesome. Uh, this is kind of random, but I'm curious, like two and a half year olds, what was the diaper situation like? Or were you just like, hey, you're getting potty trained now? <laughs> um, diaper situation was intense. Diapers are expensive 
for two kids at one time. We were, we were, I was still in college, you know, so we had a lot of help with the diapers. But when we came actually to Africa, what was really great was that we had a squatty potty, which is just like a, a hole in the ground toilet. So that's pretty easy to train your kids when that's the toilet. And then the, the ground in our house was cement. And so if there was accidents, it was easy to clean up. <laughs> We're both parents here, so we're talking about that stuff. Um, tell I've never had that question before, so that was great. Tell the listeners how the book then came about. So I started writing down these stories of things that was happening. Of um, I'm a Christian, obviously, like I said before. Now we're in this Muslim country. Somalis are 99.9% Muslim. And so... I had kind of been told, sometimes explicitly, by American Christians that we should be afraid coming to this part of the world that, you know, Muslims are the enemy, that they want to kill us, all these kinds of things. And then what I actually experienced on the ground was what I had started to experience back in Minneapolis of this, this welcome and this hospitality. And um, I wanted to, partly for my family at first, just keep track of these stories of goodness that I was experiencing. And then I just kept writing things down and I started to wrestle with what does it mean to be a Christian here? How do I practice my faith in authentic ways? How do I talk about my faith in respectful ways with people that I'm not going to agree with? And so the writing became a way for me to kind of untangle those thoughts and figure out what I was thinking and how I wanted to live here. And then I, I structured the book around five, the five pillars of Islam, so five major practices um, and each one of those were a practice that had impacted me significantly. Prayer, giving, fasting, um, the Hajj, the pilgrimage, and the creed, the Shahada. So, so that's how the book is structured around each of those five pillars. Yeah, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, folks kind of warning you about the dangers of going overseas to a Muslim-majority country. And uh, there's a line that really stood out from your book. You... You say something about, I don't remember the context, so you'll have to re refresh my memory there, but talk about the spiritual darkness of America. And I laugh because, you know, most Christians think of America as this shining city, beacon of hill of faith. I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors there, but shining city on a hill. <laughs> and you write about, you know, this, the, well, you, you tell or tell, tell more about it. Yeah, so there's definitely this idea that American Christians have where they talk about uh, the spiritual darkness of other faiths. So whether it's like the actual building, you know, the mosque or a, a temple maybe. Um, and I, I don't know if darkness is the best word for that, but it's uh, what I think it is often is culture shock and confusion and misunderstanding. And so we, that makes us afraid. And so we, we kind of baptize this in spiritual language. Um, and so I think that when we go abroad or when we think about people going abroad, that's one of the things that we're taught to think about that other religion and those other people. But after, especially after living abroad for so long, I can look back at my country, which, you know, I'm thankful for my upbringing and my background. I'm thankful for it, but it is not a Christian country like we think it is. You know, like the, the, some, of the, some of the historical ways we can twist the story. Um, we have, it's, it's so 
there is a, an addiction to consumerism, to celebrity culture. We are wrestling with race issues and gender issues. And so there's a, there's a way that I think that the American church can't see some of those things as something that we really need to wrestle with on a spiritual level, not just a political or cultural level. Um, you know, the, the economic, the finances, the wealth, like that consumer ad idea of faith and Christianity and the way that it's marketed with little trinkets and things like that is, um, I, I think of some of that as sort of the, a stronghold or a grip that the church needs to get out of from under. Yeah. I'm curious, is this like a, would you say this kind of, what I would say is a healthier perspective, others might disagree, uh, did this perspective kind of come to you like, you know, um, when you're still in the States? Because again, as I understand it, you spend the majority or most of your time outside the States. So is this a, is this a perspective that came to you like outside the States or when you're getting ready to leave? You know, I think I could see some things when we were getting ready to leave that I felt like were problematic, but I was 24 years old, I think, 24. Um, and I just didn't have a lot of experience or perspective yet. At that time, I was pretty consumed with those twins. And um, so definitely definitely coming abroad, though, has, has helped me think about these things. We go back to the U.S. almost every summer because we're on an education schedule as teachers. And so when we're back in the church, I can see ways that it has changed since 2003. I mean, that was a long time ago. And so some of the ways that consumerism has come into things, some of the ways of a performative nature of faith, whether it's from the, the front of the church or the people in the pews or the way they communicate together, I can sense that and I can sense the loneliness. I don't even sense it. People specifically tell me I go to church every Sunday and I feel so lonely and I think part of that is because we are um, we're, we're misunderstanding what spirituality or what what the church is for it's become I don't know if this fits under the, the category of kind of the spiritual darkness that we were talking about but in our in our addiction to performing whether it's again through some of the consumer things or a celebrity pastor we're neglecting the actual care of the people in the pews and so that, those kinds of things have become very clear to me. I don't mean to be totally critical. I think the American church has positive things, but we need to do better in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it kind of goes to what you said, like, or early on, it's like when, when we're in it, we can't necessarily see all that's going on. And boy, your, your perspective on like people being lonely in church seems, I mean, obviously many people haven't been in church for a long, some time due to COVID, uh, but, you know, thinking about some of the things you spoke about with like celebrity pastor and big performance, like someone could, someone could go into church, a big church and like, you know, if the lights are dark and there's a light show up on stage, like they could literally never like interact with another human being really. And what a shame. What a shame. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Our church here is, um, it's really diverse. It's very small. People come from all over the world who are working here and we meet together. And because of that diversity of theology, language background, it's not, it can't be performative because we can't, we struggle enough to communicate, but what we do well is we take care of each other. And so that's something that I really see as a contrast in terms of, you know, if someone is sick, 
we take care of them. If someone is struggling, we stop and pray for them. And so it's very different. I don't necessarily feel as fed, like uh, in terms of the things I'm learning at the church, academically or, or intellectually, but experientially as a body, it feels like a body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, apologize there, uh, trash, trash today and uh, the trash can, trash truck rolling on by and I have my window open. So got a little extra background noise there. Um, well, this, this really kind of touches and, and speaks to what I think, as I read the book to be about, is just kind of like broadening a perspective of understanding and opening ourselves that's how I, I I understood it. Like you encouraging us, the reader, to open ourselves up to ways that we can experience God in different ways. Um, is that is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And some of those different ways are through, I think, surprising venues. Whether it's the someone of a different religious background, whether it's a completely different culture, um, I think those things are necessary for sharpening our faith, even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if you wrote this particularly, but this is, again, something I drew out of the book about how learning from other religions can often bring us closer to our own. And I know, I'm sure this is what you experienced, you know, in Minnesota Baptist days, and certainly I did too, younger, is this idea that you need to, like, run the opposite way from anything that's different um, and it almost creates like, it's like this fear, like, oh, if I get too close, I'm going to lose, lose my distinction. And, and I'm guessing you'd agree with this, but for me, it's been the opposite. Like, as I've learned more about other faiths and other perspectives, like I become more sure of my own. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think we are taught to feel threatened by the other and what that develops is a fear and a barrier instead of uh, a relationship and so I I definitely feel like what I have experienced is my faith is it is very distinctive here because it's different it's a minority and so when I am talking to a Muslim and when we're having a real authentic conversation I'm challenged to understand and to be able to communicate why do I refuse to become a Muslim why do I insist on loving Jesus. Why, what do I love about it? What do I appreciate about it? Why is it precious to me? And so I'm, I have to go back and really wrestle with, with the Bible, with my relationship with God, with Jesus and say, do I still want this? And it's a real conscious decision as opposed to being immersed in it where I don't even necessarily have to think about it in Minnesota. It's, I'm just a Christian and this is what, you know, it's almost normal in some way. So by contrast, I'm required to really wrestle with do I really love this? Yes. Does this really work here in a different context? Yes. Um, and so instead of feeling threatened by, you know, a, a different religious system, I feel um, bolstered by it, encouraged by it, and blessed by it. Yeah, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about in America, and perhaps this has subsided, um, if only because seemingly being seemingly been replaced by hatred or um, prejudice against Asian American folks now. But certainly in America, since 9-11, there's been this huge backlash uh, against uh, Muslim folks and folks from Middle East. 
Um, I mean, what what do you think? How can how can how can church do a better job? How can the American church do a better job of just a you know just discouraging that and speaking against it to start with, and then you know breaking down or or um, connecting more people? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. First, a very specific suggestion is there's a book coming out in May called Islamophobia. What Christians Need to Know and Do, something like that, by Jordan Denari Duffner. And it's really good and really practical. And so I recommend that for sure. And then in my hometown, our home state, just last week there was horrible graffiti on a mosque that said death to Islam, and they drew a swastika and these kinds of things. So Islamophobia is still strong. But what happened after that was 400 people from this little town came out to help clean up. So many people came to help that mosque clean up that they they couldn't even do the work. There wasn't enough work for that many people. And so one, we just, we cannot be doing that kind of thing. But two, we need to help the mosques or the Muslims to be, to feel safe, to feel welcome, to be protected. And we can do that. That's not, that is not an un-Christ-like thing to do. That is very much what Jesus would want us to do in loving our neighbor. And so we can be practical about it, but what, what churches can even speak to or help their people to understand what pastors can say or, or professors or, um, is just to learn about Islam in a respectful way, not from people who are saying this is a religion of evil or you know our enemy. Find good sources. <laughs> even Muslims themselves, we should be learning about Islam from Muslims. You know, my book, I didn't want to make it like an academic book teaching about Islam. I wanted to share stories about real life experience of Islam and how it impacted me. I am not in a position to teach what is Islam. That's what Muslims can do better. So I think that we need to learn um, with humility, with curiosity, that kind of attitude about Islam and from Muslims. And then that can help us just to understand that they are regular people trying to live a faithful life. You know, often in the United States, they maybe are immigrants. Maybe they're not. Maybe they've been in the U.S. for a long time. But, you know, as outsiders, how can we welcome them? How can we make sure they feel safe? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. I may be over-reading stuff, and that's not fair. But as I read, I really, or I guess I'd say it this way, like a lot of perhaps the antagonism or mistrust of Muslim communities in American Christianity comes from this theological foundation that they're that they're the other that they're ungodly um and so I, I don't know if you want to tackle this um yeah but just reading some of the stuff in your book like you talk about um you might need to describe this for me I'm not sure if I'm saying it right fitra fitra uh, and you kind of compare that with similars to being born again in Christianity. Do you think there needs to be a broader or new understanding of in our, you know, th- Christian theology about how Muslims and their relationship to God? Yeah, I think that that would be a valid thing to consider. Um, I think we need to appreciate that we share an Abrahamic tradition that in the Quran, Jesus is mentioned more than the Prophet Muhammad, that we share prophets of 
Noah, Lot, Joseph. Uh, Hagar plays a large role in the Muslim pilgrimage, the Hajj. So we have a lot of commonalities. We don't see eye to eye. We don't agree on all things. And I'm perfectly comfortable talking to my Muslim friends about the things we don't agree on. And so if we can be respectful by understanding the things we do share and then going from there, I think that we can make a lot of progress in appreciating a Muslim's faith. So I, one thing that American Christians, and I think people in general, insist on doing is seeing other people through our own perspective. And so we insist on defining Muslims as unbelievers because they aren't Christians or they're non-Christians. And so we put this negative you know, term on them as opposed to that's not how they see themselves. They see themselves as believers, as Muslims. And what I experienced when I came here, one of the first words I learned was this Somali word, galo, galo, which means infidel. And I realized that, I realized people were calling me. Yeah, I'm the infidel. What? I am not, I'm not an infidel. I have a real deep, sincere faith. And yet I understood all of a sudden that I was being defined through their terms and I didn't like it. It didn't feel respectful. It didn't, it was offensive. And so can I authentically see them as a person of faith, not my faith, not the same faith, but a person of faith in one God, the creator God, going back to Abraham. And, the, you know, can we respectfully see each other in that position? And now we can have a real conversation. I'm not sure if I'm exactly answering your question, but, but that's where I feel like, yes, we can have a re-examining of how we understand them as people of faith. Oh, I wanted to address, um, you brought up this concept of fitra. And that was something that it really, it really helped me. And one of the things that, that my book is about is how, how Muslim friends led me closer to Jesus. And this is one of the examples of how they did it in that. So, so Muslims believe that every person on the planet is born Muslim, including me, you, everybody. We're born Muslim. And so I have converted away from Islam to Christianity. And so now... If I became a Muslim now, they would not call me a convert. They don't have con the concept of conversion in Islam. They call it reversion. I would be a revert. I would be reverting back to my original condition, the state in which I was born. And so fitra is that, that state of being born as a Muslim. And so when I started to think about this idea of, my, my friends ask me sometimes, you know, do you want to say the Shahada, which is the Muslim creed, which if you say it with, faith, then you, that's what, how you become a Muslim. And they were asking me to revert. And essentially what they were asking me to do is to revert back to my original condition. When I think about that as a Christian, what is my original condition before Genesis 3? But Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we are made in goodness. We are created in the image of God. Good, very good. And so the call to, I, the call to revert back to that original condition is the call to be born again. Be born again for a Muslim would be to be born again as a Muslim, like back to your original state as a Muslim. But for a Christian, I took that idea from John 3 of Jesus and Nicodemus to think back, what are we calling? What does it mean to be born again? It's a call back to being, remember, you are made in goodness. You are made in the image of God. Believe that, live in that. And so in that way, this idea, this Islamic concept helped me understand and appreciate John 3 at a whole new level. It's not the same theology, but it, it just helped me reconsider it in a fresh way. I love it. Now, um, you mentioned prayer. 
you you talked about how I think if I read right, there was times you you were invited to, and then you would pray. Um, so I'm curious, describe that you know experience, and then what are your thoughts on you know faith conversations, and even perhaps uh, worship, you know, Christians and Muslims together. A few times I have been invited to pray with Muslims. Um, sometimes they'll say, no, we don't know if this is okay, you know, theologically or with different people. And so I never asked you. I don't think I've, maybe a few times I have when it felt appropriate. But um, the, the Islamic prayer is, it's five times a day. So we hear the call to prayer. There's mosques, you know, surrounding my house. I hear it all the time. And then a Muslim will wash in certain ways, and then they will do this prayer. It's a ritual prayer, so recitation of certain things. They bow, they stand, they kneel, they put their forehead on the ground. And so it's very um, structured. And I don't know the words in Arabic. I don't know all the movements the right way. And so when friends have asked me to join them in prayer, I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm not becoming a Muslim. I'm a Christian, and I don't even know what I'm supposed to say or do, but I will pray in English in the name of Jesus and I'll follow your motions. And they say, great, let's go pray together. And I think of those kinds of moments as a holy welcome, or like in the beginning, I talked about hunting for the divine presence and looking for the signs of God. It's a holy welcome into sharing a sacred space. And then I'm, I'm always clear that I am saying my own words, that I'm not becoming a Muslim in this moment, but that I do value prayer. And there is nothing wrong with a Christian bowing in prayer, right? We can use our bodies and our faith can be embodied in this way that also has felt fresh to me through, through these kinds of prayers um, with Muslims. And so, you know, whether or not someone believes that we're both worshiping in that moment, I think is up to individual conviction, but I can recognize that they are praying in sincerity and I am praying in sincerity myself alongside each other yeah i i wonder and i don't know if you have thoughts on this but i wonder when we think about you know this podcast is about future christian future christianity in the church you know i wonder as we as this world and our nation becomes more you know globalized and diverse you know the the conversation in america is often on what majority minority country in 2030 or 2040 i don't know when the when the specific date is it, it really seems to me that there's so much hand wringing going on in america over the loss of our culture and values and institutions and norms and all this blah blah you know frankly white supremacist cover um it really seems to me like the 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 way to retain these things that we hold dear is kind of like it's not by running away or being fearful of the other it's like you did um learning more interacting with these people and um discovering for yourself again what makes these things important to you Yeah, and we have to recognize as an American church that we are not the center. We aren't the center of history. We aren't the center of the planet. The church is global. I think we really forget that we are part of a global 
body and it is diverse and it is beautiful and it is thriving a, a lot of places you know the u.s i hear a lot from american christians that kind of this hand-wringing like you said of what's happening and we're so divided and it's true but we need to remember that the church is more than the american church and i, I find that really um encouraging and hopeful and inspiring to look at how the the kingdom of god is everywhere it's pervasive and, and christians are doing radical things of loving their neighbor and serving the poor and protecting each other and you know doing things during covid to take care of each other so we need to remember as an american church that we are part of a global community hmm. yeah so good uh this is this is off topic but i told you i was going to ask about it tell me about your running in i can only imagine like uh a couple of years ago, my parents took my my family on a Disney cruise, and I did like a 5K on some Bohemian island, and it was so freaking hot and humid. <laughs> How do you survive running? I mean, unless my geography is wrong, you're not you're sort of close to the equator where it's like scalding hot, right? It is scalding hot. That is true. That's a very good way to put it. Um, one, Djibouti is one of the hottest countries on the planet. Um, and so in the summer, it can get up to 120 degrees. Right now, it's, it's getting hot, we say. It's getting hot, and every day the, the real field temperature is over 100. And we're not yet complaining. <laughs> so it's hot all the time. It's humid most of the time, not always. But So I run, um, I run slowly, especially when it starts to get hot. I take walking breaks if I need to, but... Um, and it's just kind of gross sometimes, but I tell myself this kind of mantra in my head that I am stronger than the heat. I'm stronger than the people sitting down. And I get up real early in the morning. I make um, my, my camelback, the backpack of water that I carry, I freeze it. And so when I go on my long runs, I have an ice block. I don't, it doesn't feel cold on my back, but the water stays cold, so that helps. Um, yeah, and it's been a real source of joy for me to experience this country on my feet. It's sometimes been challenging. There's um, not very many female runners here, and so it's a little bit unusual, but I've been able to participate. I, I helped to start actually a girls running club. It's the only all girls running club in the whole region in 2008. And so that's been really fun to be part of. And some of those girls have gone actually to the Olympics in the um, junior Olympics. So that's been really fun. And so I have a little, you know, it, it means something to me for to be able to participate in sport here, especially as a woman, and build community through that. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is fun, and I really appreciated your conversation. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Rachel Pie Jones. So, uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for your conversation. Uh, you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to, but if you're Pope for a day. What do you want to do? What does that day look like? That kind of thing. Maybe you've already had this answer, but I would have women be priests and I would let them all get married. <laughs> Those two things. That works. Yeah, that works. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. Hmm. Okay, I have two for this. Can I have two? Yeah, go for it. One is pretty esoteric and specific to me, but there is an Italian Catholic woman named Annalina Tonelli 
that I would love to meet. She, I actually wrote my first book about her and she had lived in the village that we were living in, in Somaliland. She had spent over 30 years in the Horn of Africa working among Somali nomads who had tuberculosis and developing treatment for them. And she was um, in Somaliland in 2003 and was assassinated inside her tuberculosis clinic. And that was the reason that my family had to flee. And so I just, I find our stories similar in some ways, but very different. Um, as a Catholic, she just really appreciated a lot of the Muslim things too that I have shared about. And so I would love to have a conversation with her about her life with Somalis. And the other one I was thinking about, I think would be so interesting to talk to uh, in the 600s when Muhammad was first, when Islam was just getting started as a religion and these things were developing, around him were, were some Christian hermits that he was in conversation with. And I would love to talk to those guys and see what did you think about what was happening with this religion at that time and how did you interact with Muhammad? I think that would be fascinating. Good, yeah, interesting. Um, what do you think Christianity will remember, or I'm sorry, I'm saying that wrong. What do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Well, obviously there's COVID, right? But I hope that what history will remember is that this time is a turning point for the church in terms of race issues, in terms of issues of gender. And then I hope that history will remember, again, for the church, that this is a, a thriving time for the global church. Um, as the, the U.S. kind of maybe lessens or loosens some of its grip on political and cultural or religious power that the other parts of the the body can really start to thrive and, and come up with um, theology and pastors and teachings and these things. Yeah, maybe is the right word there, right? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. What are your hopes for the future of Christianity? So again, I think this comes back against the global body. Um, my hope is that they will continue to thrive. So... I, th I think this is right, that right now the average Christian on the planet is a Nigerian woman. And so if you know you were to think about what does a Christian look like if an alien came down and was looking for a Christian in 2021, they would see a Nigerian woman. And so my hope is that that woman or people like her will thrive and flourish and that the American church with all of our finances, you know, that, that's something that we still can really contribute as a body, that we would use things like that to bless these other people in other places. I love it. I love it. Um, where can people find out more about you? So I am Rachel Pye Jones on all the social media things, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and my website, rachelpyjones.com, where you can also find the link to my Substack newsletter, in about a week, we're starting a book club to talk about pillars. So people are welcome to sign up and join that. All right. All right. So that's uh, Rachel Pye, P-I-E-H, Jones. And uh, check that out. I'll have links to all that in the show notes uh, for our listeners. But Rachel, thanks so much for your time. And uh, I imagine we're, Rachel's almost halfway across the world. And it's, what, almost nine there? She's probably wrapping up soon for bed. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Lauren. This is great. Great. Thanks so much. And uh, again, may God's peace be with you. 
Thank you. You too. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again and go in peace.